And welcome and welcome back to the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast, where our mission is to advocate for an unsiloed approach to fundraising and innovation in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, as always, Dan Saunders. And one of the most uh, rewarding aspects of this project over the last few years has been getting to connect with other fundraisers who are engaging in thought leadership and doing some really innovative things in the space. And I'm real pleased to uh, be able to speak with one of them today on the show, um, Ben Johnson, who is lead strategist and founder at Frontier Marketing and also host of the Frontier FM podcast. It's always good to speak with fellow podcasters to hear their take on what's happening in the industry. And we're thrilled to welcome him to the show right now. Ben, welcome to the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. And I'm thrilled that you're taking time to spend with us today. Well, awesome. Hello, Dan. Hey, it's uh, great to speak with you here. And um, before we get into um, discussion about uh, what you're seeing out there, we're going to talk a little bit about trends and mm. um, some uh, general things that we're seeing with with innovation and, and digital fundraising. Um, we would first like to get our audience an opportunity to get to know a little bit about you. So if you wouldn't mind, could you take us through your fundraising story? Tell us how you got started in this great industry and how you ended up where you are today. Yeah. And uh, yeah, first off, isn't it fun to be part of the, the fundraising podcast club? Uh, you know, those of us who started a couple of years ago before it was cool. And I, I don't think it's cool yet, but um my, my fundraising journey began about a dozen years ago. Um, I, a colleague of mine uh, that we've worked together ever since, we tried to do a startup in Vancouver in 2008. Uh, it was around micro-volunteering. Uh, that was enough to get me in a national newspaper, but not enough to actually be a full-time job. Uh, but one of my first clients uh, reached out to me to become their online fundraiser. Um, they referred to it as interactive media at the time. And I started working there, and that's uh, Union Gospel Mission, who's my now uh, first client. Um, I really enjoyed the role. What was funny about it was, at the time, you could sort of do whatever you want in digital. There was, there was no best practices established, so they were just like, have at her, and no, not quite. Uh, but then uh, one of the things I stumbled upon was their fairly established direct mail program. And I was like, you know, what if I made some adapt adaptations to this uh, to be a little bit more appropriate to what I thought for online? And if someone's getting a Thanksgiving piece in August, well, maybe, maybe it'd be more appropriate to send it in September. Um, then I was like, well, well, one of the things I can do in email that they can't do in mail is send a follow-up with some photos. And so I had uh, like, hey, here's a Facebook photo album of, of the event. And, and anyway, I kept along with that. And it turns out uh, email was a growing trend in 2009, still is. Um, but then I, I had to move, actually. Um, and that was back before this work remote culture. And so when I moved with my family, um, I actually ended up turning into a consultant uh, business. And, and then, you know, fast forward a few years later, it turns out there was way more opportunities than just having one client. And, uh, and, and the world of integrated fundraising has been mine ever since. That's fantastic. And that's definitely a topic that uh, I'd love to dig into later in the show about how you feel about integrated fundraising and how we can uh, encourage more fundraisers to think just like that in the industry. But that's, that's really heartening to hear that you were, um, experimenting with ways to combine these two channels um, 
as far back as 2009. So you're definitely, uh, I think, on the leading edge of a trend that uh, we're all kind of talking about and buying into, but just figuring out how to implement. So we definitely look forward to um, talking about that. Um, Can you share a little bit about the Frontier FM podcast? This is one of the fundraising podcasts, which I discovered at the uh, NIO Summit last year and has quickly become a regular in my podcast feed. Um, how long has the podcast been going on and and, and what were your goals and, and objectives when, when you started it and what have you discovered through the podcasting experience? Yeah, um, and actually, I don't know, personally, it was quite cool for you to, to mention both of those things. And, and because um, like any marketing, it doesn't feel real until someone, I'd say even a few people mention it. Um, we've had a couple of clients mention the podcast and, uh, and it was like the online marketer and me just, just, just could go to heaven now hearing that someone else I didn't know has heard it. Um, especially someone not related to me has listened to it, you know? <laughs> uh, but uh, so a couple of years ago, um, uh, the team had the idea of a podcast. Um, I think, you know, if you think of more traditional ideas that have now passed, there's ideas of blogging and how to, how to get into SEO uh, but the this voice format is such a great way to show a conversation. Uh, we took a look at a, a few other podcasts, particularly in Canada, there wasn't that many at the time. And they, they often lack this, this the conversation. So it was a little bit more like, hey, here's 10 things you need to know about outer envelopes. And we're like, oh, that doesn't feel like us. Um, and then, um, so my, my colleague Matt and I, we were kind of the, we're, we're the duo that, that are the, the mainstay. And then another one is like fundraising for the most part is fairly laid out. It's more of a person's journey about learning about fundraising than us as a whole learning about fundraising. Um, but the thing that I enjoyed was also connecting it to the now. Uh, so like, you know, like, hey, Clubhouse has come out. Like, is this, is this a thing? Turns out, no. Um, and, and just the, this idea of, of taking fundraising and constantly mixing it in with what's happening right now and seeing what sticks. Um, and then just in enjoying the depth. And, and I think there's very few opportunities aside from going to conferences or, um, you know, like the post work, like, let's, let's talk about this. That's that you can actually just kind of dive in like we're about to do now. Yeah, I agree. I, the conversation aspect is what's really cool about the format. And um, I don't know about in Canada, but I know here in the States, a lot of nonprofits are podcast curious. They're intrigued by the format um, because it's so accessible now. You don't need to spend a lot on, um, on, on editing software or equipment to get started. I mean, we, we started this podcast literally or from my kitchen table with an iPhone. And then it mm. kind of uh, went from there. Um, so the, the accessibility is there for anybody, but I think where nonprofits are struggling is um, how to utilize it. What's the real benefit of this? Is this a direct fundraising device? Is it something to tell stories, to draw a deeper connection with our donors who do listen, even if that number in raw terms is not a huge amount? Um, so I'm, I'm curious to get the perspective from a consultant, because you and I are coming at this from slightly different places. This is a personal project for me. You obviously you have your your consultancy there. Do you see some a model there for the nonprofit world to, to look at podcasting and the audio medium as, as general? Is this another direct response vehicle or is it 
something else to kind of add layers to the relationship that they have with their donors? I, I think it's huge. Uh, one, I'm coming at it from uh, an entrepreneurial digital native. And so like when I traveled through Europe in 2008, I created a blog. It was a pretty fun way to like, uh, like I, I actually journaled where everyone else said they would, but you never end up doing it because there was this like public accountability that I had and this, this fun medium, both to myself in the future, but also to friends and family. Um, and I think if we were, there's one thing that a, maybe a non-entrepreneurial person, um, when they look at the internet has a fear of is like, oh, well, like it's not going to be like the Joe Rogan podcast. Um, and, and be like, well, no, that's the beauty of the internet is the long tail is that there's, even if you had a hundred fans, you know, the, the joy would be maybe a thousand. That'd be unbelievable. But what's funny is like, you're, you're just as likely to put a, put time right now, if you're in a nonprofit into Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, even, and, and wonder what other communications methods are available to you. And, and, and I think the, the, the joy of podcasts, um, which again, if you're struggling, um, is, is probably more of a burden, is the fact that there isn't a, a defined you know, uh, how-to. Uh, because if you wanted to make a 10-part series and then you're done, go, go to it, right? It's the same as like we're under, underutilizing video as nonprofits. And so it could be a, like, this is a new donor podcast, right? Getting to know us better in 10 steps. Um, they could be making it for employees if they were quite large. Um, they could do more than one, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's the, you know, you, you don't be like, okay, it's going to be every two weeks is the sort of the Frontier FM format. So like that just establishes a rhythm for us. Um, for most of the first year, we're like, okay, let's talk about a few things. And then eventually we're like, okay, let's have like a few minutes where we chat. Uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about one thing. And so even just that idea of finding your, your rhythm and your purpose as you go, I, I think is valuable and then starting to hear back from people. But I think it's just, it's another addition to the communication mix. I, I don't think it's um, fundraising focused. Uh, I think, you know, usually there's a programmatic thing that you want to be talking about as a, as a charity. Um, and maybe if it's philanthropy rate related, it's, it's letting other people's stories come out. Uh, but I think the the opportunity for creativity within podcasts is is just still so nascent. Yeah, and it really can be anything. I think that's my advice: is don't get locked into um, the trappings of a format. Is you may discover different things along the way. I mean, when I started dynamic nonprofits, um, it was just me talking about fundraising tips, and then we progressed into. Um, interviews. And I found that the interviews were my favorite part. I think they've been mm. the most well-received by the audience because I think something magical happens when you start to open the listener up to a thought process, which is what's so cool about this format is it is conversational and you can kind of talk around things. It's almost like having a glass of wine with somebody at a, at a, at a, at a conference, you know, you're kind of going inside and opening up the thought process and you could throw ideas out there in a way that, um, that are just hard to do in a more polished format doesn't mean that the raw conversational nature is right for everybody, but I do think there is uh, something to it. And from a donor or a business standpoint, um, you know, it's very easy to get trapped in the raw numbers of how many people are engaging. Well, for one thing, if you're a nonprofit, you have a, a donor base to start off with to cross promote. I don't know if you had a, a, a list of people that you were able to start um, promoting your podcast too, or if you were starting from scratch like I was, 
But if you have a list of donors who are engaged, statistically today, there's a certain percentage of them that are going to be interested in listening to content about your organization on a podcast, whether you're talking about what's happening that week at the organization, donor stories, beneficiary stories. There's so many different ways you can go about engaging in the audio format. And even if it's not a huge number of people that, that do it, I think somebody who's willing to listen to a half an hour or an hour of content about your organization is extremely valuable. So I agree, if, if you look at the long tail approach and you kind of just set out to provide value, um, good things will happen. And then from there, as it grows, it can snowball and then you can start looking at it as a, as a top of funnel device for finding new prospective donors. But I think focusing in on your core donors and providing them value, however you do that is a great way for nonprofits to start and, and definitely a, a viable channel for nonprofits to be using. Uh, absolutely, yes. And maybe some, some tips I'd provide is there's um, a recording service called Descript. So if you want to get a transcript of, of everything you said, it's quite cheap uh, to just have that done. And all of a sudden you've got written version of what you just said that could be repurposed for something else. Um, anytime you broadcast a podcast, it's a SEO dream because that's going out to so many other places. Um, and be it if you wanted to see your podcast on Chartable or all the other ranking sites, that's just yet another place where your website got put. Um, but also if you're looking for content on things like Facebook and Instagram or LinkedIn, where, where we could even talk about as a great trend is you need to be having, you know, a thing to talk about. And a great example is, is for you and I is, oh, I was just a guest on this podcast. It was so great to meet with Dan and, and here's a link. Uh, for more and and I think just the thing to remember is you can you can be referencing that you have a podcast and some donors would be like wow yeah they're really all doing the the latest trends I'm so proud of them right might not be listening but just knowing that you have one is, it could be a comforting feeling yeah absolutely and um, there's something cool about it it's a passive format that you that isn't replicated on any other mediums you can't read an email or read a piece of direct mail while you're mowing the lawn or walking the dog, but you can listen to a podcast. So it just gives donors and potential donors more ways to interact with your organization. I appreciate you sharing the advice in that because I do think it's, um, it's a channel where the usage and adaptation is way ahead of where the nonprofit sector is right now, at least at the organizational level. There are a handful that I know of that are doing some really good work with podcasts, um, but so much more potential there, I think. So I appreciate you sharing your advice. And it's always good to get that uh, practitioner point of view um, from people who have actually gone out there and, and done a podcast and understand that the, the, the slow grind it can be in, in the beginning. Um, you know, one of the things I really like about Frontier FM is that it is conversational, that you're not afraid to get into the real world outside of fundraising. And, and what I mean by that is it's very easy to kind of boil fundraising down to statistics and numbers and techniques. Um, but every once in a while, you get a very real reminder uh, about the impact of the nonprofit sector and the impact of the organizations that we work with. Um, I know a lot of people had that realization uh, during COVID-19. And um, now we have the situation in Ukraine. And um, I'm just curious if, if you have any sh thoughts to share as a fundraiser, um, if this has caused you at all to reflect on 
the impact of the nonprofit sector or even just outside of fundraising. Um, it's really hard sometimes as, as a when you're doing a podcast, there are real world events that are so impactful that they're just impossible to ignore. And um, you're three weeks in, into the war. Um, I, th I thought it was it would be good to just discuss and get any thoughts you have from your perspective. Yeah, and then anytime something unexpected or disaster or, you know, in, in this case, uh, war, um, may maybe just to briefly talk about it from the agency perspective, I think that's where you test how much is built on schedule and advance notice and, you know, all these processes that an agency builds with a client. Um, and then it's, it's also a question of how quickly can you throw out all of those processes or how quickly um, and then maybe how um, intentional are the people within the agency to make sure to, at the very least, you need to relook over the content that you wrote two months ago. Um, so um, and, and a lot of my like, recent perspective on Ukraine is just how much my, my son, who's nine, keeps talking about it. He's just I think he just keeps getting surprised at seeing it everywhere. Uh, like, you know, it's the middle of the night and there's lights on and turns out they're yellow and blue. Um, and he's like, oh, did they, did they build that for Ukraine? And like what, you know, just and someone had actually we were driving by and they had a patch on the back of their their vest that was Ukraine. And he's just he was just so just taken aback at how it's everywhere. Um, and I, I think a big part of fundraising is what's in the news. Um, and so kind of two things that I was, I was trying to share there was one is um, if, if you don't change anything, is that out of step with what's happening? So it's like, ah, oh, you know what, we're going to send our same Easter campaign that we usually do. Um, and and if, if you're ultimately trying to provide an authentic email to donors or mailing, are you saying like, hey, this is what I'm processing right now, or this is what's going on? And then at least pivoting to your Easter campaign, um, even if you aren't um, fundraising around the news, like are you at least aware of its place within it? Um, and, and that's been one just to, to make sure that, you know, are, are you working with an agency that's able to, to pivot that quickly? Or if your internal team is doing it, I think this has been a time where um, more and more uh, communication, I, I describe it as person-centered in that we want to be honoring whoever the beneficiary is, but also moving away from overly designed marketing content. Um, and, and one of my reasons for that is when I got started sending email, no one else was. Um, and now every business is trying to send email, so it looks very corporate. And so how could you now be the purple cow, as Seth Godin would put it, and, and seem more authentic and real? And and I, I think charities um, that have really kind of met the moment when it, when it comes to Ukraine is, do they, are they using video? Are they sending sort of quick, shorter emails saying like, hey, this is happening right now. Do you want to, you know, be, we want to be there to meet the need. Do you want to join us? And I, I did have one, I don't, I don't know if you've seen kind of two sides of it on LinkedIn, but there, there's just so much made around um, being able to support people directly uh, through Airbnb. And so someone was like, hey, here's this idea. There's no fees. You can directly support people. Um, and I think personally, fundraising is people supporting people. And so that, that met a criteria of like an ideal giving experience. Uh, but then I saw a lot of, well, yeah, but 
isn't it better um, that it be done via an organization? And this is people who run organizations saying that, not just a general donor saying, you know, I right. personally think I'd rather give through a uh, an organization. And to me, that was like this. And then I, I'm I'm in steeped in West Coast culture, which is about you know justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and you know decolonizing kind of seem to be a little bit um, heavy handed to say it's better to be done through the charity as if um, that was sort of a, a self-evident fact. Right. Um, and so I think it's an interesting time for charities where you see just a strong compulsion to help. Right. Um, and then a lot of organizations um, not ready for the moment. Um, and that the easiest way to be ready for the moment was to simplify and have more authentic communication. Um, and then, but like a, the one that's really kind of stood out to me was the just the Airbnb debate, um, where it's like, uh, to me, there isn't anything inherently wrong with someone just wants to throw money that way. Um, and it was interesting because like the the anti camp was like, well, they're not as ethical as you might seem, um, and you know it's better to be done through a centralized, coordinated effort. So it's like according to you <laughs> like that's uh, like you know what i mean like it's not a universal law that we should trust large organizations with money right and the the, the rebuttal to the airbnb stuff was well a lot of these are properties that are owned by people that don't live in ukraine so there's no way to know that you're helping yeah. an individual who's actually there on the ground and my response to that is to take a step back and Think, well, what does this tell us about the donor? That the donors like the perception that they are personally helping somebody, that there's somebody yeah. that they either um, know that they're helping on an individual level or at least could envision that. And what can nonprofits do ethically to put more of a human face on their work? And yeah. instead of talking about help, uh, the, the, and and we're all kind of lost in the numbers here, two and a half million refugees, mm -hmm. the worst refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. It's, it's just overwhelming. But we know that individual stories are more potent with a lot of donors and carry more weight than numbers because we're just not always able to internalize the gravity of numbers. Plus, what you don't have a, a picture or a letter written by a child or something like that. It just doesn't have the same kind of impact. So that's what I would be looking at as a nonprofit and say, well, why are people so drawn to the idea here that they're donating through Airbnb? And we hope most of that money is going to the intended causes. But even if it's not, it is worth taking a step back and seeing, well, what does this tell us about donor behavior? It, it reminds me a little bit of the debate over Facebook fundraising and other forms of digital fundraising where you don't get the information and the, the, the response usually from um, the fundraising establishment, for lack of a better term, is, well, we, we don't get the information. And, and my response is, well, why, what are we doing wrong that donors don't want to give us this information that they're preferring to give in a way where they're, they're not giving you a pipeline to continue the relationship? And I think every once in a while, it's good to um, I mean, it's certainly good to talk about these things, but it's also good to kind of self-reflect and say, well, what does this tell us as a sector that we're not doing properly, that, that donors are essentially trying to create a new vehicle for donating on their own? Yeah, and or even kind of more broadly is like, you can see how, you know, an e-commerce provider, so to speak, like Airbnb, is much more enabled 
than any charity. Um, and the idea of like, you know, I, I, even, even if there is sort of criticism around, um, you know, here, here not every uh, facility is owned by a, a local Ukrainian, they have created the, the one-to-one methodology of peer-to-peer giving, right? Like the idea that like you have to be a um, trusted person to be using Airbnb and they're generally speaking trusted uh, hosts. So they, they created that, that network just so happen to be used for different means right now. And I, I think there's, there's this great irony for a charity to say some of that money is wasted. Right? And be like, you're kidding me? <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah, go ahead and compare the metrics of, you know, going through one of the largest organizations and charities in the world uh, and throwing money at the problem through Airbnb. Like, well, I think one thing that's missed is this, it's not that it's not relevant to a donor, but it, it doesn't cut off the generosity experience. And the fact that I can, I can be instantly sending $150 to someone in Kiev, uh, that's an unbelievable experience for me as a person to feel like I'm meeting the moment. It's a little bit different to say, was that ultimately successful? Which like anytime there's a financial crisis, you need to throw money at the problem. Right, like it's better to have too much money into the economy than not enough. Right, right. Um, yeah, donors yeah. think about uh, how does this make me feel? They're not thinking about, even when they're donating to conventional organizations, they're not thinking about fundraising metrics for the most yeah, part. They're yeah, thinking yeah. about how does this, how does the act of giving make me feel? And people, if you're donating to um, an address on Airbnb, I mean, it makes them feel good because it feels like, feel like they're helping someone on a one-to-one level. Um, I, I remember, um, a couple of years ago, I was going into my gym and they had a fundraiser on the wall for, um, one of the customers, uh, one of the customers, uh, children, um, was in the hospital and they were doing a fundraiser for her treatments. And if you donated, they put a gold star on the wall with your name. And Mm. I said, shouldn't, this be the goal of every nonprofit. So you can't replicate the one-to-one experience of a gold star on the wall like that, but shouldn't that be the case to, to, for, to make the donor feel like they're, they know who they're helping or at least a, um, um, something that's representative of lots of people that they're helping that they feel on a very human level and that they feel appreciated on, on that level. And, and I think something like that, I always saw as kind of a good, model to strive for to get people to um you know to to appreciate uh, to feel appreciated um on a grassroots level even if it's a yeah. much larger campaign and i don't think it's beyond the scope of very large and accomplished uh nonprofits to do that it's just a different way of thinking than solely promoting your institutional value and, and the brand of your organization it's just it's a very different approach yeah, it's um, kind of a couple of things come to mind. One is like, I, f- I feel like there's this valley of death in between organization size. Either you're very small and you're able to do the stickers and it's just so grassroots and authentic, or then you get very big and then you're able to replicate it at scale. But in between there's, a, ah, we just don't quite enough have enough resources. I wish we could be like the little guys. We're not that anymore. Um, and, and, but there's, it's actually, I see very large organizations can often um, kind of replicate that authentic, genuine one-to-one experience when they realize that, uh, how straightforward it is to have that, that positive relationship with a donor and make them feel, feel valued. Um, kind of working podcasts back into our conversation, this is where you'd want multiple mediums as an organization. 
And you might be like, how on earth do we send a direct mail piece about Ukraine? Like, we're, maybe we're not even there. Uh, this, we're, we're not an organization that's, um, that's relevant for that moment. Um, but boy, like, what do we have to say about it? Um, it'd be pretty awkward to, you know, work it into a direct mail piece. So I suggest that's of some of the value of lift notes or buck slips, as they're called. Um, but it'd be like, hey, we could have a Zoom webinar and then say, hey, we're having a moment of, you know, talking about it as a team. Would you like to join us? Um, and, and be like, this is the extent of what it seems to be relevant to us. So here you go. And the, you, that's, that could be that your charity meeting the moment. Or um, here's a video from someone who is, you know, connected. And I think if you've, any of us have listened to the Daily, um, New York Times Daily, um, just unbelievable job in podcasting because there's someone there. Um, it's this sort of, it feels so raw in that they're walking around and, and like translating what was said in the moment. And, and if anyone said this, like, hey, we're, here's a, a podcast instead of an email um, to be like, you know, just here's someone who's abroad processing their thoughts on what's happening and we wanted to pass it along to you, right? That the idea of passing along feels so, so human and authentic. Absolutely. Um, something else that you mentioned that I kind of made a note here was um, this idea of, as we talked about uh, in the beginning, uh, you uh, with Frontier FM, you're not afraid to acknowledge the outside world of fundraising mm -hmm. because uh, that's that's kind of how I feel that sometimes uh, it, it doesn't feel authentic to pretend like there's not a world outside of this and to remain super top. Like, that's just how I, I personally feel. But yep. I I think there's something there for nonprofits as well, that human element of acknowledging the outside world, even if um, even if the, the situation in Ukraine is outside of your scope of work. I mean, I posted in the first couple of days, I, I thought that this was an opportunity for nonprofits if they were ever going to promote another cause. This is something yeah. that everybody is behind. And this is actually something I've been promoting um, uh, for Giving Tuesday, for nonprofits that don't participate in Giving Tuesday, uh, to promote the concept of generosity, and and maybe you list a couple charities that are mm. important to people in your organization, and regardless of how much that raises, you're you're telling your donors, hey, we're human, we're in this for the right reason. So I think there is those benefits too. In addition to, I think from a human standpoint, the nonprofit sector is sitting on millions of donors, people who inherently want to do good with their, with the, their personal money. Uh, what an opportunity to kind of unleash the power of it for something that everybody universally is aware of and, and wants to help in any way that they can. And I feel like the sector isn't quite there yet. There's still kind of a sense of, well, these are our donors. And if they give to someone else, they won't give to us. And um, I've been staring at merge purge reports uh, for direct mail for 15 years. So I know that's not true. The best donors give to a dozen or more charities. And you know, you're probably, uh, if somebody is going to give to Ukraine because of an email that you sent out, you're probably they probably were going to do it anyway. But they uh, most certainly, if they're a top tier donor, are already doing something in that realm. And it's just kind of an opportunity to put a human face on the sector. And um, I, I think something that 
would stand out to most donors on an email list because it's not something you expect to see, but something that I think would be well received. Do you have any thoughts on just that concept in general of nonprofits in situations like this where there's big universally uh, aware, uh, universal awareness about a disaster, um, promoting other causes or just the, the general concept? Yeah, I and I have kind of a theory that fear and waste are two huge drivers within the charity industry and probably not in the traditional way we think about waste. But um, what's interesting about capitalism is we have Airbnb. There's an issue in Syria. And what do they do? They're, they're hosting people. Um, and we'd be like, oh, well, that was good PR for them. And it's like, well, it's short term bad capitalism. Um, and what does good PR mean for a charity? And then this idea of talking about others or are like, oh, there's not an opportunity to make money or we're not going to make money on this. So we'll just ignore it. Um, and one thing that I think is, is kind of a, like, you know, what, what's our stance on, on Ukraine is like, you don't, no one really, or generally speaking, no one really cares what an organization's stance on it is. But if you're showing and saying we're someone who cooperates well with others, as we're, we're such a trusted authority for you as a charity that in this moment we're, we're partnering with so-and-so as another charity or in a different location. And so you can keep relying on us to, for that discernment. That's pretty amazing because we're showing our values um, through this action or you know, our, our, our own inaction, but saying, hey, maybe you should uh, give to this right now. Uh, likely they're like, again, like from a financial perspective, well, maybe there's some loss there, but probably not a, like a, a legacy gift, right? Someone's like, oh, man, I think I should commit my estate to this short-term emergency need. You've lost me as a donor. Um, and, and so I think that fear of like, well, man, if we, if we commit the giving Tuesday email to someone else, like this could be the end. Um, and it's like, for some reason, for-profit businesses that are, are excellent within their growth um, are, are doing this. Like, and, and I think Airbnb is such a, it's a great example because there's been moments before Ukraine where seemingly their values are shown. And another example I gave is, um, I, I think a lot of organizations should be moving off meta, Facebook or Instagram. And so if you're an organization that serves teenage women and it's absolutely pro proven that Instagram targets, not, not as an organization, but it just can't help but target uh, teenage women and promote anorexia and bulimia and you're like oh well but it's still it's still a great place for us to promote community it's like ah is it uh, and then the same thing for for facebook where uh if you're like we're about bringing communities together it's like on the platform that's now proven to pr proven that it pulls communities apart um and like those those are my personal points but um what's amazing is patagonia says our values don't align with this we're pulling all all our ads from it and then the reason I'm, I'm saying is like, as a charity, it'd be like, whoa, that's too bold. And it was like, so Patagonia, who only exists to provide shareholder value, it has this very clear purpose within capitalism is to make money, is saying, you know what, this is a good play for us. Um, like, you know, maybe they're not being so uh, much of a marketer that I am. It's like, they could probably get more PR out of not being on Facebook than being on Facebook. Uh, but what's really uh, just sort of astounding to me is I, you know, putting that mirror up to charities where they go, I, I'm not, we're not bold enough to do that. What's the cost? It's not like there was a bonus that the charitable leaders are like, you know what, we, we get, you know, 5% of our, our Giving Tuesday 
Um, they like what's, you know, that I'm just describing that's in capitalism for short-term incentivizing, but we're, we miss that in charity and yet still there's a lack of boldness. Well, I think the private sector has come to realize that very often doing the right thing from a human standpoint is also um, good from a capitalistic standpoint over yeah. the long tail. Now it can backfire if you come across too much as pandering or virtue yep. signaling. And that's where I think, you know, if you're, an, if you're an organization has nothing to do with the crisis and you do, you write a tweet, you know, stand with Ukraine, but you're not willing to promote organizations that are actually doing work on the ground. To me, that it, it comes off on the wrong side of that equation. Yeah. But if you're genuine, you're authentic, the Patagonia example is a great one. Um, it's beneficial in the long term. Now, is that a cynical and crass way to look at it? I guess you could say that. But if that's your driving concern is uh, from a scarcity mindset, this is going to cost us revenue. You're right. Look at what the private sector, who is, which is many of these companies are obligated solely to their shareholders, and yet they're still willing to cost themselves money in the short term because they realize that it's good for a customer sentiment and trust and and. Um, again, this wasn't an idea that originated. It wasn't. It didn't originate with this conflict. But I keep thinking to myself: Imagine the perception that gives to your donors if you're willing to say, "Hey, we're willing to trust you with this information to um, yeah. promote another cause because we're in it for the right reasons." And um, yeah, it's interesting. And that's one of those one of those interesting gaps between the nonprofit and for-profit sector. And, and this conversation was one of the reasons why I like this format so much is we were able to get into what I think was a very deep and, and um, I think useful and practical conversation about implications for the nonprofit sector. It was not uh, intentional, but uh, probably not something that would have happened in another <laughs> format. And I Absolutely. did wanna, I, and, and I know that both of us definitely have our thoughts uh, with everybody in Ukraine. And um, I mean, what more can you say about it? It is. Uh, just a horrible situation that we hope gets some kind of resolution in the mm -hmm. near future. Um, and there's not really any way to, to transition on from that, but I do want to get your thoughts from your perspective, because I think you have a very unique one. And as I have gotten to know um, more fundraisers that are working in Canada, I've really gained an appreciation for um, the really the robust fundraising culture, for lack of a better word, and a lot of the creativity that's going on up there um, about the, the digital scene, the state of digital marketing, digital fundraising, what nonprofits are doing, what they should be doing, um, because digital marketing has kind of gotten grouped into this big phrase, and it means so many different things. So what are some of the, what are some of the prominent trends that you're seeing in your work? Yeah, well, um, one that I enjoy is uh, kind of how we've connected, not just from from podcasting, but through LinkedIn. Um, I think just in terms of an organization who's thinking about digital and thinking about social, if we're going to do that one, is uh, needing to think about LinkedIn more and more. And 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 I don't know if like it'd be interesting just to see um, kind of growth and adoption by country. Um, but I I just I think it was largely ignored up until the last like eighteen months. Um, and like one, one thing that like the kind of the industry lacks um, because because we're such a sort of geographically separated people is the feeling of, of ongoing co connectedness. And um, a lot of trends are often birthed out of the US. I, I do think um, um, there is like just thinking in terms of the way digital grow, we, we didn't, um, I had this theory that the reason Frontier grew so quickly is there weren't any Gen X led 
uh, fundraising agencies, and maybe there were, and they just didn't take off. But um, one of the organizations that was a major competitor of ours for many years was US-based. Um, and so this other, other agency had this dominant um, presence along the kind of gospel rescue missions or poverty relief organizations in Canada. And then there was a couple other kind of boomer built organizations. So they were, were very traditional, very much into direct marketing from a, from a print standpoint. Um, and, I, and I think unchallenged in their best practices. And so someone who came in sort of naively accidentally created an agency and said, like, well, I'll, I'll send emails and then I'll figure out afterwards I'll send mail. Um, because of this Wizard of Oz effect that they said was like, it's so difficult to do direct mail. There's so much data. And, and um, I, so we had this sort of uh, price destruction, as it were, from a, from a um, kind of economic perspective where um, I, I described building emails as a little bit like building a, a ship in a bottle. Like it's, it's still the whole work of building a ship but you just have to have such little fingers and so little details. And if you get a little one off, it's very noticeable. And you know what, what this link is broken. Um, and initially it was raising hundreds of dollars or thousands instead of tens of thousands. And, and I think there was a lot of people in Canada, particularly that started doing email and they didn't grow up in print um, because it was just done by US firms or not done at all really. Um, so I think we, we as, uh, there was many of us who have strengths in digital fundraising um, before we learned print. Um, and it, tell you what, like one of the, my experiences was once I started learning more and more about print, became my favorite thing. Uh, because clients would be like, hey, I know we're about to send that email, but could we rewrite that? And I, like, I just have like 30 changes and it, like we're sending it in an hour and I know you don't have to send it yet. Um, and I, I, I just wish MailChimp was more like my print provider, uh, where it's like, nope, it's gone to print. Sorry. Uh, yeah, you know what? We could, but you know, the, the plate changes are quite expensive. Uh, like I would, I would sponsor money to make sure there was plate changes for email. Um, and to be like, you know what? If we make this last minute change, who knows what would happen? Um, and so like, and, and then I dive in and it, just for our perspective, like the data side to me was easier than I could have imagined for, for print. Uh, it was just, like I said, treated a bit like Wizard of Oz. Um, and, um, so we really enjoyed getting in it as data nerds. Um, but then the idea of like, it's, it's like this slow moving tank of working on a print project. Um, whereas you tend to do say five emails or a few emails for every print project that you're doing. Um, I, I described it as like scooters and tanks. And you're like, you're working with this like small group of emails, every little detail matters and you have to be so responsive and you have to be so nimble. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and now work on this, this print newsletter or direct mail. And it just, you had breathing time. It was treated with like sanctity, right? Like we got to get it right versus like, email is like oh i'm sorry i haven't sent my edits in and like, there was just cultural elements that like once you got used to email print just seemed like this this oh man i like so much easier and and like uh, and when it like raises a couple extra zeros it's 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 just valued as a whole more um so i, I think we just like cutting your teeth in digital first really helps um but in in terms of like other trends um 
one thing that's like that Christmas and year end is a is more of a drive because Thanksgiving isn't as as big a as a season and and it's weird for for Canadians to to think of November as a holiday time. Um, Giving Tuesday has been an interesting one where I had a major match campaign before Giving Tuesday was a thing, um, and it's so funny because uh, there is no cyber monday there is no thanksgiving thursday black friday is has been huge forever in canada um and so it's interesting that the whole structure leading up to giving tuesday doesn't really isn't really a thing in canada uh like you know no one's taking that friday off or thursday off it's just a normal week ahead of giving tuesday um and so it's it's a great example of like a cultural construct where it's like uh, charities were just learning what a time-defined campaign would be on the in, on the internet, um, and then there was like all these stats of like, wow, did you know how much you know giving went up on this Tuesday? And it was like, guess what? If we all sent email on a certain day, giving would go up. Like uh, there was sort of like this. There's a, it's a fascinating one because, you know, for you, giving Tuesday is part of a larger construct. I think. Um, but it, it like you separate it in Canada, and it, to me, it's just a great example of uh, kind of learning the patterns of good fundraising without necessarily learning the principles. Yeah, I I wonder that's really interesting you know, perspective about Giving Tuesday, um, and that's encouraging because it tells me that there is an organic element to it. Like um, Giving Tuesday is the intent of it is wonderful, but mm, I think from a nonprofit from a, the standpoint of building an organization of donors, um, the idea of, of cultivating donors, whether they are existing donors or new donors to give because it's Giving Tuesday, because of the reciprocity principle of the, of the, of the holidays and, and maybe even a sense of guilt or obligation. I don't know if that's um, conducive to building um, strong long-term relationships, but then it's interesting because you see this it is being adapted successfully in Canada where you don't have the rest of that cultural construct to go along with it. And I wonder, do you think that nonprofits should invest more time into building their own meaningful giving days and their own brand and identity as opposed to kind of chasing these, um, these, these days which have been become important, labeled important by the industry um, but where every nonprofit on the planet is, is competing with each other and sending almost the identical message to give because it's giving Tuesday. Yeah. And, and you said some great things there, especially at the end is like, um, given now that it is a very crowded space to send a giving Tuesday email, um, thinking in terms of, um, that was a good first step or that was, it, it's superficial in its own way that like, on this day, in Tuesday of November, we will all celebrate the opportunity to give. Like, and it's not based on a deep spiritual thing. It's like there's no there's no deeper roots other than we just set it so. Um, and what's great that means is you can set it so for some other day. Um, and so years ago, I made this for UGM this match campaign, which is the four days of the week prior. Uh, to Giving Tuesday, uh, so it'd be a big. It, it wouldn't necessarily work for a U.S.-based organization because you're doing it over our Thanksgiving week. Um, but we had this massive four-day campaign. It's grown to be a million dollars in a week online, 
And the, my joke was like, let's take all the city's money before Giving Tuesday happens, right? Let's have this big thing. If you know that everyone else is doing a thing that, that on a Tuesday and you have the thing a week prior, like it's just, it's like, so it's good strategy is knowing what the other teams are doing kind of thing. Um, and so given that everybody's sending these, these emails, like um, I had one client, they decided to send a non-fundraising email and say like, we want your feedback or we want your stories. Like, you know, everyone else is, you know, talking about giving and we, want, we generously want to hear your story. Uh, so there's other things you can do with that, but it's like, if you found out that you could just construct an event, uh, I think one takeaway is match campaigns are incredibly valuable and it's been something we've been building a competency around each year and we have this long document of all the little things you can do for a great match campaign. And, and I think that's, if you have a time defined match campaign in a, in a season that a donor feels primed to give, I think that's like most of the takeaway. Um, so it, it, maybe you couldn't have a February match, uh, but we have uh, it, um, family day when you, I think there's like, there's a mid-February uh, holiday that you have. Valentine's Day? Um, no, no, I don't mean that one. Like it doesn't, it, it's like oh. the third week of February oh, okay. um, for us. And anyways, um, so like they, so be like, if you're an organization that's like, hey, this family day, it's still not fully aligned with that donor's flow of giving, mm -hmm. right? Like November and December, it's hard to fight those, right? Um, but uh, I, I think there's the remembering the donors calendar is more important than yours could ever be. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why Thanksgiving, Christmas, year end are so important. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a lot of takeaways to like, what were the elements of a great uh, match campaign or uh, Giving Tuesday? And maybe something's more appropriate for you in September. And like, maybe it's back to school. Do you, uh, I, I'm, I'm amazed. Um that match campaigns are still as effective as they are, which really drives home the value of them. Um, because here in the States, I think they've been devalued by political campaigns that do oh, yeah. 10 yeah, time 10 matches. Yeah, exactly. 20, yeah. 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 And it, it kind of loses its meaning, but I think donors are very intuitive at sniffing out something that's real and meaningful and something that that's a gimmick. So um, we, we still, as far as I know, they're still as potent as ever, um, but you don't have that added layer that may be creating some cynicism about the, the concept where it's, it's kind of been, it's kind of been yeah. done to death at the political level. But if you, you know, if you build out a story and, and you talk about um, the donor who's, who's sponsoring it and the meaning of it to them, it can still be really potent. But I, I think in the States, I think it's become a little bit harder just because there's a lot of noise out there that have figured out just how, how potent of a concept the match campaign is. Yeah. And actually to your point there, um, like the fundraising cycle in politics would like, it's so different in Canada that a, our political organizations are somewhat fundraising incompetent. Um, so, and, and it's the frequency is so much rarer. Like it could be six years in between national uh, fundraising campaigns. If we if we were to kind of separate the politics of politics, um, it's quite mm -hmm. infrequent for the fundraising drives to happen, um, and it's it's it has kind of a marginal effect because uh, like Canadian politics are built around regionalism, um, and uh, so just the like I, I you know to step back for, from my perspective is that we're we're not uh, our team looks at U.S. and like national elections for seeing the um, innovation that comes out of it because of the high frequency. 
um, but we're, we're not burdened by the, the burnout of kind of the scorched earth that is continual uh, fundraising campaigns in politics. Um, but I, honestly, and maybe that's where, like, because there's so much less noise in Canada, there's this opportunity to kind of just sustainably grow, uh, build your own voice. Um, and I think match campaigns, in some extent, I would say they're more important in the, in the U.S. than Canada, just to, like, maybe the, the social justice side of me is like we would, we'll maintain a little bit more of a middle class being more socialist. Um, but there's, but I think particularly with match campaigns, you're able to, to pair two opposite audiences. The one where it's like two for one and I'm being pulled into something with larger impact than I normally would have. Uh, but then creating that environment for a major donor where they're being like, hey, like look at the greater impact we're having not just through your money, but your money and that we're convincing them to give. Um, and I think it's, there's this, it, you can give that insert, insider feel of like, can I give you updates with how it's going? Um, when, you, when you honor it as an annual tradition, it can be a little bit more like a capital campaign. Um, I, I think having one big digitally oriented campaign per year is important for just about any organization. Uh, one of the better um, match campaigns that I've seen is one where they actually will go out to uh, the high dollar donors to raise the money for the match. And then that's the match that gets utilized for the, the lower dollar donors, as opposed mm. to it just coming from one individual or the board, which is yeah. funny of that too. And a lot of that's done well, but um, that's one of the, that that's an interesting concept where it kind of yep. makes it feel. It's a, it's a virtuous cycle. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. As um, opposed to, you know, one big donor kind of exerting their influence. It, I mean, and, and it's still effective, but I, I thought, I always thought that was an interesting campaign because it kind of made the grassroots feel contagious that, oh, people were on the same wavelength as people who are giving more than us. We're pooling our resources together for a greater good. Um, so I thought that was, that's an interesting concept that caught my attention. Yeah. And I think um, a big thing with like integrated fundraising or just to kind of the concept in general is like, how do you think repeatable, sustainable long-term? And one of the great things about an annual match campaign is, you know, I, I might give $500, but you gave 5,000 and we're like, Hey, Dan, you know what? You should next year, you should probably be on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of that, that like donor journey of like, oh, I actually gave to a match campaign. Now they're asking me to become a matcher. That's a, that's a pretty cool experience for you, the donor. Mm -hmm. And it'd be like, yeah, you could be part of that pool next year that, you know, combined, we need a million dollars, as you know. Um, and you've provided the sort of the construct of a conversation to say, can I talk to you about being like mid high value donor? Um, you know, I know that, you know, that it requires high level donors, right? And you greatly <laughs> overperformed what an annual donor is normally giving. And that's, that's amazing. We wanted to thank you. And here's your gold star. Um, but do you want to join the other club now? Um, yeah, that's we'll report, a... yeah, report back to you. Um, and, and I think, again, you think long-term uh, that, that ideas like that come up. You mentioned LinkedIn before, and I agree. I think LinkedIn is a tremendous opportunity. Um, I believe the latest data I yeah. heard is that... Um, 90% of the content on LinkedIn is being generated by 1% of content creators. So that's part of the reason the LinkedIn algorithm is so powerful is that relatively speaking, there's not a lot of quality content being generated. So there's a big room there for anyone, uh, thought leaders or nonprofits uh, to fill that gap by putting out uh, quality content. Um, 
why do you think that hasn't caught on more in the nonprofit world? Um, I have my thoughts, but I'm, I'm curious yeah. from your perspective well, and, on the agency um, end. And I'm thankful for a uh, podcast like yours hosting uh, Anthony Jones. Believe his yes. Name. Yes. Um, and Anthony's so great one, guy. one is uh, it's like that type of voice is new. Um, usually there's uh, someone with a cute affect at the end of their name as their social media consultant instead of Anthony Jones, conservationist. Nice to meet you. Uh, if you think of him as a social media consultant, he doesn't fit the trope. Um, and so I think there's having more folks like him say, here's how LinkedIn is useful. Here's how to um, be more brave. You know, rem remembering that fear is a big part of nonprofits where they're like, what if what if what I speak isn't useful? It's like, just so you know, most of what we speak isn't useful. Um, and, the, and the great thing about social media is it provides superficial analytics, but analytics nonetheless. And, and, and something like LinkedIn rewards frequency. Uh, but I think we're, I, I'm honestly really thankful for people like him, where if you're listening to this, go back and listen to the Anthony Jones one, because, and then follow him on LinkedIn. Uh, is there are certain traits of digital communication on a professional network that allow you to move forward. Um, and I think one that was, was valuable for me was I didn't have to be positively enthusiastic for everything in my industry. Um, and I didn't have to be someone who was promoting every trend. I could be like, you know, is it important that we do this? Or here, here's, here's my take on something and, and go, you know, maybe the algorithm will eventually reward me uh, by placing me next to other thought leaders like yourselves. Um, and so, and remembering that the community as a whole is really large, but your community is probably pretty small. Um, and that if you're consistently communicating in a certain way, that's by definition creating a brand. Yes, and Anthony, Anthony does incredible work. I definitely recommend going back and listening to that interview and uh, following him as well. Uh, he, he's somebody that had a lot of influence on me early on and seeing yeah. what he was doing on LinkedIn. Um, and I think the hack there for nonprofits is that most of the things that Anthony is talking about doing personally to build your networks are also things that he did on Ducks Unlimited. Yes. And yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, I see it's, it's the same thing. It's putting a human face on your organization. And if you look at the work that he did, where they um, promoted members of the team and talked about their work there, and then yep. members of the team promoted their organization, it wasn't really mission-based. It was just kind of putting an added layer on it. And in the same way that if you follow his model, um, you don't want to be 100% job-driven if you're on mm -hmm. LinkedIn. You know, people give to people, people do business with people, yep. um, people have relationships with people, they want that human element, they will reward it. Um, I think the same thing for nonprofits that if they're on there, that not everything on there has to be super mission focused or on brand. And I think that's where a lot of nonprofits, especially larger ones struggle is they're kind of trapped into this, um, this model of what their brand is. And they struggle mm -hmm. to figure out how does this translate to Instagram, to TikTok, to LinkedIn. And then the direct response folks come in and then it's, well, how much money is this going to generate yeah, for us? Exactly. And it's, it's hard to sometimes sell putting money into a time into something that isn't going to generate a lot of direct revenue, but maybe adding value to a lot of valuable donors. I mean, if you think about the demographics that are on LinkedIn, um, how 
how do you see addressing that from an agency end, having that conversation about um, adding layers to relationships with donors versus direct revenue attribution? Yeah, and um, you know, a couple couple things is um, one that I love that you mentioned is like making sure the guidelines are here's ideas for what you can do versus we don't want you to do. Right, if you don't want someone to post, write a list of of punishable offenses on social media. Right, um, and if you don't trust your staff, you should get new staff. And I think that was a good good anecdotal comment that he had. Um, one thing that I just thinking about LinkedIn is, and this is somewhat connected to integrated marketing, is if you're an organization that's like serving uh, people in, you're not in Brooklyn area, I'm wearing a Brooklyn hat, but um, New Jersey, is that? Yes, yeah. So there's there's a local mission serving food there and you're following people that you donated to and that they followed you. Um, and they post, you know, here's last month's or, order of burgers, here's this month's order of burgers, and it's three quarters of as many. Um, and then you get a direct mail piece that's saying, hey, like the, the cost of food is rising. We're trying to do what we can. Can you help us? And you're like, my goodness, I had a visual example from the person I'm connected to. Um, they, they weren't saying, you know, please donate now to inflation 2022. Um, but this, this opportunity as well is if you think about the identity of the donor, there's an opportunity for you to share that post, even if LinkedIn doesn't reward it you as the donor get to go like, I'm so proud that I'm able to support these people. Uh, they're doing such great work. You're, you're providing the substance of someone else's social post. Um, and so I think when we think of all the organizations, um, making sure that your people are posting, you're creating quote unquote influencers. Um, but if they're championing donors, I think that's one of the best things that can be happening there. Uh, like, Dan, congratulations on the promotion. We're so proud of you, said my local charity that I support. Like that's, that's when it like transcends as a relationship. Um, and if my company, say Frontier, gave a donation to a local mission and we're posting a check, isn't it great if they were celebrating us there? And I think that's the thing to, to recognize is um, how do you have that philanthropic experience or kind of social good make its way into LinkedIn? And sometimes you just need to create the footprints that someone else will highlight. Um, and I think that's what's tough about an agency is we're often thinking of like, what's an action that we can do that directly causes another action? Um, and like good authentic communication is you're, you're throwing stuff out there and then occasionally someone else takes it and, and makes something valuable out of it. Yep. And I, I genuinely believe that um, good positive interactions with donors and building community like that um, will have a net benefit and will do good things over the long run. The initial, the, the hardest part is that initial buy-in and just believing that this is something that's worthwhile and is going to um, increase revenue and improve relationships with donors in the beginning. But if you have the, the foresight as an organization to kind of see through that test period, um, good things will happen if you're having those types of positive interactions online. And I think the things that you're talking about, building a true community with your donors mm. is uh, is fantastic. And um, the opening is there for most nonprofits that want to do it because there still is a shortage of LinkedIn creators and quality content on LinkedIn. And um, I know my experience, I don't know about yours, has been that if you put out things that are relevant and meaningful to a target audience, the link, uh, the 
the algorithm will reward you. It will find the right people to look at your messages. So it's still, as Anthony says, the, the golden era of LinkedIn. No one knows how long it's going to last, but it's definitely still here. Yeah. And, and, and one of my big surprises is like, I'm actually thankful it's owned by Microsoft. The like, you know, the younger version of me is just like sits back and shocked. They're like, this is, we've got a great taker, caretaker in that it's meant to be a professional medium. And, 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 you know, he mentions that, um, you know, the newsfeed wasn't a long time part of it, that it's still trying to get over the, the hang up of being our kind of job posting.com or, you know, resume.com sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that to say is that means if your organization starts moving forward, um, there needs to be that encouragement to say, uh, here are some examples, or I've been, I, you know, maybe you start as a thought leader doing it for a year before bringing it up to your team and say, take a look at how, what I've done. Um, also because evidence won't be instant. Um, and, and I think charities always have this false impression that, that social media will have a quick turnaround. Uh, for them and and I, I don't know about you but like I started regularly posting I, at least I thought it was regular in 2020 and then I think I've doubled my frequency of posting um, in the last year and just to see the overall growth is basically in the last three months you know if you were to zoom out and that's what you know an exponential curve should do yeah frequency is definitely important in the beginning and having being on there on a regular basis and it's that it's that long climb in the beginning um, that is a struggle, I think, for organizations and individuals alike. But if you reach a certain point where you hit a critical mass, I find it's less important how often you um, less off how it's less important how often you post as long as you're continuing to post relevant content, which is a value because you've built an audience, the algorithm's kind of been trained to show your content to your desired audience and you've established trust with them. But it's it's that first three to six month climb, um, which which is difficult. So you kind of have to buy in and have faith, but the opportunity is certainly there for anyone on the individual professional development side or nonprofit side looking to um, deep in relationships with donors who, who want to take it. And uh, we're talking with Ben Johnson, who's lead strategist and founder at Frontier Marketing, host of the Frontier FM podcast. And as we prepare to wrap up our conversation, which I have found to be really enjoyable and enlightening, um, we appreciate you taking the time. Um, mm-hmm. You've been, talked a lot about connecting the worlds of direct mail and digital and a lot of things that you've done on your own. And I'm intrigued by that because that certainly is a, a founding mission of this podcast is to advocate for unsiloed fundra- an unsiloed approach to fundraising and bringing together um, not just different channels to work better together, but different parts of nonprofit organizations. And um, one of the issues that we have here in the States, I would say, is that we are finally getting to a recognition point that um, having multiple streamlines of contact with donors is value valuable. The more you have, the more value and loyalty you build with donors. Um, but execution is still a struggle because there's a lot of direct mail vendors that really are don't have a foothold in digital and a lot of digital vendors that maybe don't dabble in direct mail because they consider it to be off-brand. And you've successfully managed this integration, starting from a digital background and then figuring out direct mail. Do you have any advice from your personal experience for the industry? How can we do a better job of integrating our fundraising channels and having them work better together to create a a better or cohesive donor experience? 
Yeah, and I, I think um, maybe my my ignorance is starting as a 24-year-old male uh, helped me in that I, so structure is kind of, again, going back to fear, but also uh, in this case, structure is one of the, the biggest barriers for growth for charities, um, both the structure of how agencies were built, as you're saying, uh, but also internal teams. And so if you structure your organization based on giving levels, um, why wouldn't a donor who gave $10,000 a year receive an email? And he's like, oh, well, those are my donors. He's like, what if they don't inherently like you? Like, right? Like, why, why make someone so attached to one name? Like what, if, what, like, what if they subtly need other ways to get through to the organization other than the person you assign them to? And I think a lot of times when I came in was I would just see how that structure created these false barriers. Um, and I, I remember getting frustrated. And so lack of incentive is a, is a big one or over an incentive within the agency world where um, I could see attribution. As a data nerd, it really bugged me where I'd see I raised 100,000 through this email and then it'd be like, oop, 90,000. Oh, well, it was a major donor who gave and you know we, we've been talking with them for the last year. So we want to record it as a major donor gift and not an online gift, despite that's how it happened. And so I think initially having this sort of stupefied approach to seeing how charity accepted as, you know, as, as a, a normal experience to, to silo, I was like, well, this is like, there's still people, <laughs> right? Like, it's just like a major donor and someone and, and yes, likely their wealth, but it also could be your lack of connection to them, right? Like they could be a major donor somewhere else and you've just conditioned them to think $300 was good enough. Um, and so I, I think when you don't make it donor centered, uh, although that, that, you know, the, that comes with some, some of its own connotations, um, and you make it sort of structure centered, it's just, there's, it's idiotic for obvious reasons kind of thing, right? Um, like you, how do you pass through a person who is an online donor and being an offline donor? And I think years ago, maybe it would have made sense because like, I don't know about you, but I got a Gmail account in 2005. Um, email and, and the use of that was, was relatively new in the, in the aughts, uh, but it isn't anymore. Um, you know, my, I, I joke, my, my daughter and my mom, you know, everyone has an email address now. And so if we were before saying like early adopters instead of online, um, and, and, uh, and not making it, uh, oh, younger people use email. Um, like we have some clients go, oh, maybe I'll send more faith-based content over print than email. And it was just, it, they, they got comfortable themselves because they've sent more faith-based content via print. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, you know, maybe our, our online audience is different. And I was like, says who? Like, like why is that a reasonable question? It's sort of like where I go. So I think the best way to like unsilo is kind of break the religion of structure. Um, and like you have to prove it that the structure is needed instead of you have to prove that structure you know, isn't needed. Um, and in a big one is like in a mistake is certainly that uh, has happened in the Canadian world was moving people to email only mm -hmm. and be like, would you like to receive less mail? It's like, you're triggering this desire for someone to not be a burden on a charity. Um, and a big thing that I, I talk about more recently is I, I call it home delivery instead of mail. Um, and if you ever shop at eBay or Amazon, odds are it arrives at your home. 
uh, after you make this quote unquote e-commerce purchase. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but I, I haven't, I've yet to make an NFT purchase. So very rarely, although like I've, I've purchased like a Fortnite skin, that's probably the closest thing I've come to, to buy like a digital only item in my life. Uh, it's just kind of realizing that the more you think of uh, the person and how can you in multiple spots interact with them um and and like it's 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 tough again because um if you've rewarded people on their compensation based on the portfolio that they oversee mm-hmm. um and that for some reason people who oversee larger gifts are paid more than people who see more gifts right because we don't we, we smaller gifts right um you know what what, what mass marketing is kind of nice in that it's like high volume of giving versus you know high value um, and one of the reasons I would never join a, 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 an association of fundraising professionals that's structured around that sales model, right? That like the, the pinnacle is someone who asked for a million dollar gift. Um, so I, I think there's, there's so much to do. But the nice thing is as an individual charity, if you just wanted to ignore it all, you can. Um, because it's, it's all Wizard of Oz, right? Right. Um, and that if you think, what is someone who has the capacity to give $30, how do we want to communicate to them? Um, and just, you can, I, I think the biggest success that I've had is ignoring history, um, but then also just saying like, what's normal for a person? Um, and, and like, okay, there's, there's a paradox in that is like, you, I didn't have to believe, you know, this, the, the company started in the 60s. Uh, again, like sometimes we, we all, there's all these great direct marketing companies that have been around for a while. Um, they're probably started by the same people that, that built seatbelts without thinking about women. Uh, like if you think of like some of these huge missteps in, in science in the last hundred years, probably direct mail science has some huge missteps too. You know, like, oh, it's, oh, we got, we got to do this. You can't do that. I bet it was a bunch of white men who were boomers that started us all in the 50s who had these unbelievable mistakes that we just carried forward. So even just moving blithely forward and being like, you know what, let's let's send the same thing in email and mail. Um, Because why not? I think you're in a better position than trying to honor history. Yeah, no, I think I agree that when you have something that's quantifiable, uh, there shouldn't be any sacred cows because it's easy mm. enough to do an A-B yeah. test and to prove or disprove something. And from a structural standpoint, um, I think it's healthy for leaders to take a step back every once in a while and say, does this structure serve the donor or does it serve to justify its own existence? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. You're, you're right, when people are, um, are compensated based on how many donors they acquire versus another channel, there's not a lot of incentive to collaborate, but if you, absolutely, yeah. if you, if, if it, I, and, and my feeling on this is it's something that is great for us to talk about from the outside. It needs to come from the top down at organizations that yep. yeah. our mandate is to serve the donor, to uh, have the largest impact and to provide the best donor relationship. And if that's through um, everybody dropping their egos and their personal goals and collaborating and using uh, email or social media as a channel to uh, complement direct mail and add value to direct mail donors, then so be it if it needs to be the other way, um, which it certainly can be. I mean, the print newsletter, you mentioned uh, organizations yeah, yeah. going from print to email. Um, the real tell there is uh, there was a lot of that too in the United States. Today, you won't find many nonprofits that 
will even consider it because they realize and they understand how valuable the print newsletter is, even if it doesn't directly raise um, revenue on its own. But a lot of nonprofits don't even realize that because they switched over to e-newsletters because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's free. free. It's, <laughs> cheap. it's unbelievably easy to unsubscribe. Uh, maybe to kind of close with your, your thoughts, because um, like we're, and, and I think this is a barrier to growth for charities, is like our team is relatively new to, to rented lists. And, and yet I got a subscription to The Economist, which therefore meant I was part of the rented list program. Um, and and I, I think what's, again, kind of the beauty of our conversation is what's happening in commerce and, and that people sign up for things. And that in itself seems like a behavior for signing up for more things. And, and so um, the charity world um, has unfortunately had to rely on agencies. And I think they, they need to hold greater account to them, like you're saying there, where and it's like, prove it to me. <laughs> Just because you have a great pitch and your organization thrives because it has great pitches, you still need to prove it to me, kind of thing, right? Um, and then, yeah, just in terms of like, what can the, the our, our agency world learn about commerce and lists and, and, and then it's relatively new, I'd say in Canada, particularly. Um, I, I think it's that, and I've been trying, maybe one day I'll come up with a, a way to rebrand the profession, you know, when yes, I'm old yeah. and gray, but <laughs> I think the term list broker in itself is programmatic because it conveys this image of someone who's pushing lists on you and trying to get you to take the most vol volume as possible um, without regard to how it's going to do. And, and I always tell clients, it's not in anyone's interest for me to do that, that, you know, the, the ideal broker that you want to work with is somebody who's willing to talk to you when you're small and maybe only renting a handful of lists and, and building you up over time because seasoned brokers understand the power and scale of direct mail, but it is a long-term, uh, it, it is a long-term slog. Um, and I think that's it is that if you're an organization who's never spoken to a list broker, that's never dabbled, it's like anything else. One bad experience can really sour your perception of the, perf the profession and um, of the medium itself. Yeah. And, and just think that to yourself when you're talking to somebody, is this somebody who's looking to build a relationship um, or is it somebody who's looking to sell me lists? If you feel sold on lists, um, then it's probably at least better to have a conversation with someone else to compare it. Um, but if you're talking to somebody that explains their rationale for, well, here are the lists that I'm recommending and here's why, because here's the potential rollout universe. Here's, here are the markets that we're sampling in this first mailing. Mm. Like my objective as a broker is very seldom to give you the, the, the quote unquote best lists if you're looking for five lists to test, because that may not be um, doing you due diligence um, over the long term, because really what we want to find out in a first mailing is not necessarily to get the best return, but to find out where's the edge of the envelope, what markets can we go into? And that means taking chances and sampling different areas. And 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 somebody who's really thinking about it from a long-term um, mindset, I think should be able to articulate that. If it's just here are the lists or if the broker is trying to drive your volume discussion and not the the strategic planners, I think that's always a little bit of a, a red flag. Um, you know, brokers are seldom in the position to say, oh, you should be mailing more the first time out. I mean, if we look at results and you're making money, then maybe there's a conversation to be had there because if you're 
if you're doing too good, it probably means you're not mailing enough, it, but it, that, that conversation shouldn't be happening the first time out. So just kind of be, be aware like you would with any other vendor, but there are a lot of good brokers out there that do bring a strategic mindset to the game and are looking to a, a long-term picture. And just the other general advice I would give for anyone who's thinking about getting into direct mail list acquisition is to set yourself up for success. So do you have the ability to look at the lifetime value and conversion rates of the donors that you acquire, because that's the best way to have a sustainable direct mail program is when you know it's paying for itself over six or 12 months. Um, and sometimes that means sacrificing front end response. Same thing with email that sometimes getting more donors doesn't always mean that you're getting better quality donors. And um, very often that's a difficult conversation, but um uh, but I think brokers should should be thinking about that, even if they're not responsible for putting together the campaign it should be what's your plan? Are you just looking to make money? Or are you looking to acquire donors who will pay for themselves over the course of a few house file donations? So just, um, you know, there's a lot of good ones out there. But just, um, you know, think about the, re the, re the feedback that you're getting, and just be cautious the same way you would with any other type of vendor that you were vetting out to have something done in your home. Yeah, well, which uh, sounds like we we're ending part one of our conversation, and I get to host you for on Frontier FM to I, dive for even further into this. I am very much looking forward to part two on Frontier FM. Uh, I think that'll be a great conversation. This was a good one as well, um, Ben. If if listeners would like to get to know more about you or Frontier FM or your work at Frontier Marketing, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I I all of a sudden want to re rebrand mine to call it Edge of the Envelope. Uh, like if you're listening to this and you have to start a fundraising podcast like yeah, yeah all, all, all attributes to Dan right there but um so yeah if you frontier uh, fm if you google it that'll help my seo but also uh find me on linkedin um ben johnson um you might have to go benjamin johnson to get around the more famous sprinter um and frontier.io is our website Wonderful. We'll link to all your information in the show notes and uh, definitely subscribe to uh, the uh, Frontier FM podcast and you'll hear part two of our conversation coming soon in the near future. Ben, thank you so much for your time today and the great discussion. Uh, we really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.